Paging Dr. Randy. Paging Dr. Randy. I just got on call and they're paging me already. They want me to do work as soon as I get to work. Come on, let's go. Yes, you, come on. Well, I'm Dr. Randy, nice to meet you. I'm a licensed family medicine physician. Since you're on call with me today, I want to make sure you learn as much as possible. Me and a few of my special friends are here to give you all the tips and info you need to live a balanced, healthy life. Are you ready to be on call with me? I hope so. So let's get it going. Our shift starts right now. Welcome back, healthy people, to On Call with Dr. Randy. Thanks for joining me for another great episode. I hope you're staying safe out there. There's a lot of craziness going on. I'm recording this about three weeks before it comes out, and who knows what will happen before now and then. They're killing black people. They're killing physicians. Do you know how much I have to keep my head on the swivel right now? It was on the swivel before, but now I'm turning left and right. If someone out there trying to kill people with sinus problems, I am screwed. I am so screwed. Let me go take my flow nade so I won't get murked for sneezing. And killing people just for anything right now. But in all seriousness, stay safe out there. In this week's episode, I'll be discussing prostate cancer screening and erectile dysfunction with world-renowned urologist Dr. Fenwa Milhouse. Dr. Milhouse joined me on last season's episode where we discussed her experience with her and her family having COVID-19. This time she joins me to discuss things in her specialty. Dr. Milhouse is a fellowship trained board certified urologist from Nigeria but raised in Texas. So that means she knows good barbecue and how to hit the South Side dance. She attended the University of Texas at Houston for medical school and trained at the University of Chicago for urology residency. After residency, she completed her fellowship in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. Dr. Milhouse's personality is just as big as the state of Texas, and you all will love her vibrant and bright personality. She will share a lot of information regarding prostate cancer screening and erectile dysfunction. And even if you don't have a penis or prostate, you should still listen. You will learn something and you can pass that information on to someone who has a penis and a prostate. You might help someone to get an erection. Well, not literally get an erection, but by helping them, by telling them what you learn. But unless you whisper in the information in a sexy voice, maybe maybe you can help them get an erection. Yeah, just whisper all the stuff that you learned on this episode in a nice sexy voice and might help them in that. Okay, let me, I'm, I'm so off topic. Let me, well, am I off topic? No, I'm on topic. But, but let me let me let me get back on track. So just just listen listen to the episode and let's go on call with Dr. Milhouse. Enjoy the episode. And this will be a two part episode: part one on prostate cancer screening and part two on erectile dysfunction. So welcome to another great episode of On Call with Dr. Randy. We have Dr. Milhouse back for another episode, a.k.a. your favorite urologist. How you doing, Dr. Milhouse? I'm doing really well. It's great to be back on On Call with you, Dr. Randy. And thank you for having me. I, I look forward to our discussion and getting into this. Yeah. Yeah, last time we had you on, we was talking about some COVID things at that time period. We know COVID's went away. It's never coming back. 
So we don't have to <laughs> move on. <laughs> yeah, a, yes, yes, it doesn't even exist anymore. Even yeah. though the numbers are starting to creep up in oh, certain yeah. places, uh, wear your mask, get the vaccine, get the booster. But we're bringing Dr. Millhouse back on to talk more about things that are more so in her wheelhouse, more so than COVID. So we're going to be talking about prostate cancer screening and talking about um, erectile dysfunction as well. So what made you become a urologist? Um, I didn't become a I didn't even think about urology. Like it was crossed off the list, boy. Like when I heard about it, I was like, oh, that's not for me. I'm you know, this is a four men by men field. I'm a woman. I'm a black woman at that. Like I'm good. And it wasn't until I met a black woman urologist that like my whole world changed. And I said, Ooh, that's cool. That's dope. She's a badass. Look at her in this like man's field and, you know, uh, unapologetic and whatever. And, um, it motivated me and I really, really were, was intrigued by her and motivated by her and inspired by her. And, and then I learned to, um, from rotating with urologists that I, this was my niche, like this is where I was happy and these were my people. And I really liked what we did in urology. I liked the personalities in urology. I liked how we helped people. And so this is why I became a urologist and I love what I do. I really, really, if I had to choose my specialty again, I would choose it again. That's great. Why was it so important to have somebody of your background and of your gender kind of inspire you to become a urologist? Great question, Dr. Randy. So only um, currently only like eight or nine percent of urologists are women. Now, back when I was choosing specialties and this is now, ooh. 15 years ago, I think <laughs> it was even less. Um, I mean, I didn't even, I didn't even know of any women urologist at all. I didn't even think that that was a thing. And then only one to 2% of urologists are black. Um, and I definitely didn't know any black urologist. Um, and so it just didn't seem like something that I, I, I say it like this. It's, you know, uh, how I felt in my brain was I didn't think a black girl like me had any place in it, you know, and that's truly how I felt. Um, and so the moment that you see yourself and I truly did see myself in this, um, speaker who was a black woman, Dr. Lenane Wesney, who was at the university of Texas. I think she still is there. University of Texas, um, health science center. When I saw myself in her, um, as this urologist giving the lecture, it just opened my eyes into, this realm that of, of possibilities that you didn't even, I didn't even imagine for myself. Um, so I, you know, I, I say this everywhere I go, representation literally changed my life and representation is critical and it matters. So you mentioned earlier talking about your rotations and being around urology, that it was your niche. What did you see and what did you learn on those rotations that really kind of piqued your interest? Like, hmm, this is something that I think I want to do for a lifetime. Well, I did not ever think, so urologists are surgeons. And so one big thing that I didn't know I could be was a surgeon. I didn't think I had that. And I think that was mainly because of the impression I had of surgery and the impression I had of surgeons. The impression I had where surgery was really intimidating, was super stressful, was very like, just high 
um, stress. And not all surgery is like that. And then of surgeons, I had the impression that they were all like um, super duper genius and super arrogant and really just, it wasn't, it wasn't good things. <laughs> um, they were intimidating. And then mm-hmm. I real, and then I met surgeons that were not these things, you know, they were very smart individuals, very accomplished individuals, but very warm and welcoming and, and, um, uh, the people persons. And so I found that urologists were, were, we were adapted to being more people persons. And I think because we talk about sensitive issues, like we're the type of doctor that you're going to talk about your piss, your penis, your other pee. You know what I'm saying? You're going to talk to us about these things. And so we have to be able to be relatable and be comfortable in talking about this. And we tend to not take ourselves seriously. These are obviously generalizations, but these is, does go with, 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 are, um, it lends itself to what we do. Um, because urologists don't just do surgery, a lot of the things that we treat are non-surgical. We have to get good at talking to people too. And so I, as you will find out on this podcast, I like to talk. <laughs> so like I found a specialty that, oh great, I can do surgery, which I now like because I really love surgery um, and change people's lives. But then I can also talk to people and they can talk back to me and we get to talk about like juicy things that they don't usually tell other people. I'm kind of like that, that friend that likes to know your nosy secrets and I'm a Libra. So I like to know secrets and then help you and then, you know, be, and so it, it, I, I I love that. Like patients will (laughs) tell me they're, you know, they're, you know, most things that they're embarrassed about, that they're ashamed about, which are things that they shouldn't be embarrassed or ashamed about. But, and I get to, you know, be the friend and doctor that advises them, that normalizes it for them and helps them. So that's my niche. And I love, I love it. So they come in there and they spill the tea to you. They spell the T. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so give a little bit of background as far as the things that you do as a urologist. What are some of the non-surgical things that you do on a regular basis as far as treat, treatment wise? And what are some of the surgical things that you do on a regular basis? So non-surgical treatments that we may do. One of the subjects here, erectile dysfunction is oftentimes not necessarily surgical. Um, we treat um, recurrent UTIs, very common, non-surgical. We treat types of leakage or incontinence, um, urine leakage, non-surgically and surgically. We treat um, prostate problems that aren't cancer and can- prostate cancer, obviously, um, but n- like in prostate enlargement, we can treat that non-surgically and surgically. Um, we treat low testosterone non-surgically. Um, those are, you know, the biggest things. Oh, um, sometimes we'll treat stones non-surgically. So obviously we do treat stones, but then there's non-surgical management of stones, um, and stone prevention that we will be involved with. So there's a lot of stuff in the office that there are patients that I will see for years, for years and years, their whole life. And I will never have taken them to surgery once. Um, so that is very possible, but obviously we are surgeons and we love doing surgery. So there's a host of things that we'll do surgery on, you know, anything that involves your urinary tract, um, or your genital region is fair game for a urologist. 
<laughs> yeah, you, you're cutting up the most private parts over there. I'm fixing them. I did a TikTok where it's like me driving. I'm like on the way to the OR to fix someone's man's penis. And it's true. <laughs> oh, yeah. I saw that yeah. one. I saw that oh. one. I, th- I think it literally made me bust out laughing at yeah. work. I think you were you were in scrubs in that I was, video. It's like, oh man, here she <laughs> right. It's like there she go making another funny TikTok video. <laughs> so let's get into prostate cancer screening. So let's just talk about like building a good foundation. What is the job of the prostate? So the prostate is important for reproduction. It is one of the main glands that contributes to semen. Your semen is not is actually a minority of the semen is actually sperm, okay? Most of the semen is um, non-sperm-related fluids. Um, The biggest contribution comes from uh, glands called seminal vesicles. These are are glands that are near the prostate and near the bladder, and they think of them like they are supplying the semen with energy. They produce largely fructose or sugar, and your sperm need that for the long voyage to the... Um, ovum or the egg. Um, the prostate um, is the next um, on the list of like, you know, uh, contributors to the semen. And so the prostate releases enzymes um, or uh, proteins that break down um, different things. And that is important for sperm to penetrate um, the ovum. And so they uh, they supply that ability or help to the sperm. Um, And so that's what the prostate does. Um, The prostate is the only organ um, that will continue to grow until you die um, in um, genetic males. Um, It's the only hormone, I mean, the only organ that will continue to grow. And so because of that fact, you oftentimes will see older men might have issues with a prostate that's big and enlarging. And we can talk about that at a later date, but that can cause urinary issues and problems. And then obviously there's prostate cancer, which we'll get into on this podcast. Right, right. So let's dive into prostate cancer. So we're talking about screening for prostate cancer. I know there's kind of different guidelines depending on who your doctor kind of listens to as far as guidance on screening. So tell us about some of the screening guidelines that you kind of follow for testing individuals with prostate cancer. So yeah, for prostate cancer, prostate cancer screening has definitely been on a journey and screening prostate cancer screening came about. We discovered PSA, if you will, which is the blood test that we use for prostate cancer screening. It's a prostate-specific um, um, protein that we can chat, test in, in, in your blood. And there's, you know, a general um, normal level. I say this is general, but this is not an absolute that we look for. And so the PSA era started, I believe, in like um, the late 80s, um, early 90s. And with the advent of the PSA screening, we were like screening um, every, every every male. And um, we saw definitely a decrease in prostate cancer death, okay? Because, again, before we didn't have any screening. like And like a lot of cancers, you didn't have any symptoms until it was metastatic. So prostate cancer, I often tell patients, you're not going to have symptoms of prostate cancer. You know, enlarged prostate is a different 
thing. That's not cancer. You probably won't have symptoms of prostate cancer until it's, you know, met, met, gone into your bones or some other thing. And so we definitely lowered prostate cancer death. Um, we kind of swung a little too far to this side in that in lowering the death, we were also over-treating a lot of men. What does that mean? Well, the treatment in some cases, in some disease entities, can be worse than the disease. If a disease is slow-growing enough or indolent enough that it won't affect your life expectancy, um, but the treatment will affect your quality of life, well, then are we doing more harm than good by treating everybody like a nail to a, like mm-hmm. a hammer to a nail? Okay. And so we had to reassess what that looked like. And in fact, um, this was when I was a resident. So this must've been like mid, this was before 2010. Let's just put it like that. Um, the U S preventative task force, which is like the government's committees that review screening measures of all, you know, from uh, all systems, they made a a committee about prostate cancer screening. The funny thing is they didn't include any urologist on this committee. (laughs) Um, yeah, they didn't include any urologist. Who was on this committee? No no urologist was on the committee. They looked at, um, some studies that large studies, um, about PSA screening, these studies definitely had some flaws in them in that patients didn't um, stay within the regimen. So like you would, you would randomize patients to screening and no screening, but there was, there was, and you know, some of these studies, there was a lot of, you know, um, mixed patients got mixed up. They're like, Oh, well they, they were supposed to not be screened, but they got screened, you know? And so, um, it was tainted if you will. Um, and, and and so anyway, these were imperfect studies. I mean, you know, they, they were, they were big studies, but they're imperfect. And so the U S preventative task force came out with a D D grade for prostate cancer screening. That means we don't recommend it. That's like getting a D in class, right? You don't want to get a D that's you failed. So like they kind of swung the pendulum a little too far backwards and saying, yeah, we don't think it's a good idea to screen. Well, urologists countered that the American Urologic Association came out in a statement or response that says, listen, you know, basically like don't throw away what do they say? Don't throw away the, the baby with the bathwater. Like, listen, we know we have to fix this, but let's not like go back to where we were. <laughs> and so um, the American Urologic Association, which is basically, you can think of it like the governing body for um, North American urologists has come out with more up to date or like revised guidelines, which are looser than what we saw in the beginning. Um, before it was like 40 and up everybody every year. And I don't think there was like an end point. So like you would see men that were eighties and nineties getting screened for prostate cancer, which is not what we recommend now. And I'll tell you why in a moment, but now, um, we've, we've made this number one. Um, you'll see in the guidelines, if you read this, you can, this is available to anybody online. If you go to American Urologic Association guidelines and look at prostate cancer screening, one of the main themes is that this should be a discussion between the patient and the provider. Okay. This should be discussed between the patient and the physician, the pros and cons in you, the individual pros and cons. Every person has a little bit of difference. Um, in general, we, when we think about prostate cancer screening, we think about the risks 
and your life expectancy, okay? Because we know that majority of prostate cancer is slow growing. And so if your life expectancy is such that you're just likely to die of just natural causes or something else well before this little prostate, you know, cancer might, that you might have, that you might get ever kills you, then it's, then the, the benefits of screening are probably not that great. So that's why at a certain age, we don't recommend screening men. They've out, they've outgrown it. I mean, and that's this, that is very true of a lot of screening tests. Colonoscopies, you don't screen until you die. Um, pap smears, they don't do that for women until they die. Okay. Cause at some point you age out, if you will, the risk of you getting it and dying from it gets so low that it's not worth the potential risk of over-treating you. The other thing is like, we look at your chronic medical conditions. You know, if you're, unfortunately, if you have a lot of medical problems, your life expectancy is going to be lower, you know? And so we might choose to screen you less rigid or stop sooner because you just have other bigger fish to fry, quite honestly. Um, African-American men are considered more high risk. And so we tend to be a little more aggressive even still in screening African-American or black um, or African descendant men. And that's because there is at least a two times higher risk of, a, of having prostate cancer and almost a two times higher risk of prostate cancer death in black men. Even in low grade or like early stage, prostate cancer, there's a higher risk of death and a lower risk and a lower likelihood of definitive treatment. And a lot of, um, I'm kind of rambling, but, <laughs> but, um, we're now understanding yeah, can... that these differences are probably have more to do with structural racism than actual genetics, you know, or race, like racism, um, um, is bigger than than race or genetics. And race is a social construct anyway. So anyway, so um, we generally, what I do in our practice, and this is, so for average risk men, and this is non-African-American, no, you know, first generation male history. So like a dad or a brother, um, then you can consider starting screening or waiting until 55 okay and then and it's a, it should be a discussion and if you're average risk you can screen every one to two years and around the age of 70 that's when we should start especially if it's been normal considering whether we should continue to screen you beyond that okay it depends on your life expectancy if you're in great shape then I might screen you 75 if you're in it's I'd be hard pressed to screen somebody till they're 80 unless they're like in phenomenal shape you know African American men my black men I'm probably going to talk to you about screening 10 years earlier than that so age 45 I'm usually screening my um my black men my patients my brothers because of the higher risk and ex and if you have a family history like dad had prostate cancer well, if dad had prostate cancer, we look at what age that dad had prostate cancer, and we screen you at least 10 years ahead of that. So especially if dad or brother got prostate cancer like early, like if your dad had prostate cancer at age 50, well, then you probably need to be screened starting age 40, you know, um, because of that increased risk. 
So you got to know your family tree. You need to know when people were diagnosed. Like, yeah, grandpa had it or dad had it. But it's important also to know the age of these conditions when they occur. Not just for prostate cancer screening, for other types of conditions too. When we, when I discuss with patients about if their family member had a heart attack, I need to know what age because it put, may put you at increased risk of having a heart attack. Or same thing with prostate cancer screening. So Agree. with and the on, screening, and on that note, I think it's important. And a lot of a lot of us are like kind of vague. I'm I'm. Um, of Niger, I'm Nigerian, and Nigerians are re- really bad. Like we don't share anything with anybody. Like you would like, we will go <laughs> through a whole cancer, and you won't even know. Your mama would have had cancer, you won't even know. You know what I'm saying? Like that's how close. And mm. we need to like, we need to, um, I don't know. We shed that, shed shed that. It's important. We're protecting the next generation. I find that a lot of patients. Um, are like, I think daddy has some sort of something. He has some with his prostate. I don't know. He died of some mom, you know, like vague, very vague history. And so let's be better at that of being, you know, of sharing that history because it's important. It can help the next generation and the next one. Right. So to go back kind of on the screening, kind of broke it down into different age groups and different categories. How are you screening individuals? Are you just checking a PSA? Are you doing the digital rectal exam? And for those who don't know a digital rectal exam, that's the finger test that men are not so excited about getting. Every time they come to see me around that test, around that age, they're like, oh, you're going to do the finger test? I'm like, no, no, not today. But if you want me to, like. I can knock it out for you. Then I then I show them how long my fingers are. And then, nah, nah, bro. We good, we nah good. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> yeah, the digital rectal exam is a finger in the anus. And the reason why we do that is because you can feel for the prostate through the wall of the anus. The prostate sits right in front of the, through the wall of the rectum. It's, it sits right in front of the rectum. And so you can feel for that posterior part of the prostate, which is the most common site of prostate cancer. You can't feel the whole damn prostate, but you can feel the most common site of prostate um, through that. So um, in the pre-PSA, that was like like maybe the only thing that they, they would do. Um, in the advent of PSA, oftentimes your PSA is abnormal before your rectal exam is abnormal. Okay. Um, and so this is a bit debatable thing too. And there have been some studies that kind of said, yeah, the rectal exam doesn't necessarily add more value to the PSA. And there are some studies that say, no, it still needs to be done. You never, you know, it's, it's, it's very low risk. Why exit out? Right. It's a very low risk thing. One finger. I mean, you're not jamming it up there. So as a urologist, low risk for for the person doing it, not the person receiving it. <laughs> well, obviously, patients have autonomy. I always ask, like, are you okay with this? And I would say ninety percent are, ten percent aren't. And I'm like, okay, cool. Um, I know for sure there are many, maybe not many, but there are definitely some um, primary physicians that just got rid of the, the digital rectal exam. And I don't blame them because I don't think any of us loves doing it. So they're like, okay, yeah, you tell me it's like questionable, <laughs> boop, I'm exiting it out. So, and um, I don't personally, as a urologist, have a problem with that. 
I think that's okay as long as they're doing the PSA the right way. Um, I am a urologist, so I still personally screen with a rectal exam and a PSA. Some of my patients, they're hard to screen with the rectal exam just because their body habit is. So then I don't put them through that torture every year or whatever. I'm like, okay, well, I tried the other, I tried the first time I met you. So we just going to do the blood test. Um, so, or it's uncomfortable for them, really uncomfortable <laughs> or something. So at minimum, for sure, the blood test for screening. Right. I kind of leave it up to the patient. Like you mentioned earlier, the shared decision, decision conversation, yeah. Um, letting them know that it's kind of subjective, that I may do it and it feels normal, but we can send you to the doctor down the hallway and it may feel slightly enlarged. And then we send you to a specialist, having unnecessary tests and workup just from a digital rectal exam. But I know some of the old school doctors, they still kind of do the digital rectal exam and a lot of campaigns as well that promote individuals to go get prostate cancer screening they're also still kind of promoting that too yeah i hear you like i have definitely gotten a number of consults of like abnormal digital rectal exam and then i feel that i'm like yeah this is really not that big a deal like i don't it's not abnormal you know um so i again the it is it's it's just it is have subjectiveness where the psa blood test is not at all subjective you know um, you know, but if I feel your prostate, I'm like, oh, I think maybe I could convince myself there's a lump there, or maybe I can convince myself there's not a lump there. You see what I'm saying? Then um, that lends itself. And then again, in the advent of PSA, now in the PSA screening era, you're most likely going to have an abnormal PSA before you have an obvious uh, abnormal rectal exam. Mm-hmm. And just to kind of go back on t- touch on something that you mentioned earlier, can you kind of expand expound upon? You talked about racism and black men's health and prostate cancer screening mm-hmm. or treatment too, as well. Yeah. So, you know, I think um, it's really really widely known that prostate cancer uh, affects black men more than more seriously, more commonly than it does any other race. We, there have been studies to try to figure out, oh, what are the genetic factors, yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. Um, the There are definitely, we know that social determinants of health, social economic factors affect your health. You know, where you live, where you grow up, your transportation, your job. Um, all that affects, like, your health and your health access. And so um, that can translate into higher rates of more aggressive disease. We know that access is an issue. We know that even controlling for access, this is a study, that pros- that black men are less likely to be offered definitive therapy, definitive treatment for localized prostate cancer. So local prostate cancer that's confined to your prostate that should be able to be treated with definitive therapy. That means, hey, you probably can get cured. They are less likely to get offered that. I mean, why? Why would they? I mean, if they're higher risk, why, that'd be the, the, it should be the opposite. You know, they should be the highest people to get offered that. But no, black men are the lowest, low, lowest likelihood of getting offered definitive treatment. Um, so we can't ignore these things. And more and more we're realizing, like, what is race? You know, what, what is inherently race? It's, a, it's just melanated skin. It's not necessarily a genetic difference. So um, Mm -hmm. it makes more sense that there are structural or environmental factors 
deep-seated that are driving this um, more than anything. What do we as medicine need to do different to kind of help improve these things? Well, one thing that um, patients and people in the public can do is stay informed. The other thing is like, uh, and I think this is this is going to involve some trusting uh, where it's been hard to trust the medical and science community um, as a minority, but we need more, um, we need more representation and research. So to know more, we need to like study more. And a lot of the research on prostate cancer and screening and this and treatment is, does not have a good representation of us. Okay. There's, there's very little, um, diversity. And, um, part of it is, you know, just not looking, not, not recruiting black patients, but part of it is difficult for black patients. It's black patients are less likely to sign up. Um, and so one thing that I want to encourage our community is to like, Mm -hmm. is to open their minds and hearts to like research you know, and it's not that you're being a guinea pig. It could be something simple, like we're just going to follow you in your screening journey. Not we're going to give you it. Not every research is an experimental drug, and actually, most of it isn't necessarily. You know, and so um, I, if when when we have more of that data, then we can use that. You know, the more we know, the the more we can change things. And then also, in the same token, we need more funding for black scientists, urologists, you know, acad- academic individuals that are doing this, um, you know, and studying, um, healthcare disparities and, um, how they affect different communities. Um, and the, and then the last thing you can do on a simple level is just advocate for yourself. If you're a patient and you feel like something just doesn't feel right. I don't feel like I'm being heard. I don't think I'm taking seriously. I'm not sure my questions aren't being answered. I don't understand what the doctor's saying. I feel like I'm being talked down to, advocate. Okay. You should be able to, I tell my patients, if I feel, if you feel these kind of way, please let me know. And sometimes I'm having a bad day admittedly. And I'm like, Oh my goodness, you told me this. Okay. Yes. I want you to feel comfortable. I want you to make, make sure that I'm answering your questions. I'm giving you that time. But certainly if you're getting nowhere, like you need to, you know, let the doc, you know, if you feel comfortable, let the doctor know, and then find a doctor that will listen to you. Um, that's easier said than done in some communities where there's limited access, but we really need to, to really, um, promote patient advocacy. Right. Right. So I'm going to give you a patient scenario. All right. So let's just say, we'll say, we'll we'll use, um, a fictional name. So we'll say Michael. So Michael comes in to see me on primary care. Michael is about 48 African-American male, not having any urinary symptoms. Me and him have a little discussion. He's okay with me doing his PSA. He's not okay with me doing a DRE. I'm okay with not doing a DRE. <laughs> so I check. Secretly, I'm like. <laughs> I check his PSA. <laughs> like, whoo, thank you, thank you. I mean, it hurts them more than it hurts me. So that's, that's the thing that I tell them. So I check his PSA and normal PSA for these, we'll just say for this laboratory um, is between zero and four. I check his PSA and it's 8.5. So I get that back on my end. And usually when that happens, I send them immediately to urology. 
So what's the usual process from that for me from a primary care physician referring to urology, the workup that occurs after that kind of scenario? Well, sure. Obviously, we'll talk to the patient, get their family history. Hey, any family history of prostate cancer? If so, who? How old were they? Do you um, have any urinary symptoms? You've already answered that. Um, Have you had any additional PSAs? Like, is this the only PSA? You see what I'm saying? Like, what is the PSA trend? Is it that this was the first PSA? We have no other PSAs to to compare. Or no, this PSA has been like, it's been creeping up, creeping up, creeping up, creeping up every year, every year, every year. You know, or it's been normal and it's just like randomly spiked. You see what I'm saying? All these things can factor in um, and are important. Um, I will offer and do a DRE or digital rectal exam, obviously with the patient's consent. And so oftentimes what happens is, uh, particularly if this isn't a trending thing, like this is, because oftentimes it's not a trending thing. I feel like the primary care doctors are really quick to send us things as soon as it's even a little bit abnormal so that we don't see this trending person that's been abnormal for so long. It's more like this person's been normal, 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 spike all of a sudden, or this is the first time and it's like, whoa. So oftentimes what I'll do Unless the prostate exam is is um, is concerning or abnormal, which most of the time it isn't. Most of the time when I do the prostate exam, I'm like, yeah, it doesn't feel like anything. And I tell patients that doesn't mean you don't have cancer. It does not make you out of the woods, okay? Um, but um, assuming that, I will recheck that PSA, okay? And I won't recheck it immediately. Like, if you just checked it, Dr. Randy... And the guy sees me two, three weeks later. I'm going to wait at least a month. Probably, usually my goal, my time frame is actually six weeks. And why do we do that? Well, number one, the good news is that prostate cancer isn't going to like go from treatable to metastatic in six weeks. Okay. It's not going to, it's not going to blossom like that. So time is on our hands. Um, and a lot of times there are so many factors I feel like that we know and don't know that can affect that PSA test. One of the things we tell patients is to avoid any ejaculation within, I, and this is, I don't, um, I don't know where this number came from actually. (laughs) Um, but I use three days and I'm like, okay, I don't want you to, and that doesn't mean just sex. Like I don't want you to masturbate. Okay. Because again, the prostate produces part of what's in semen. So I don't want that to like be active, if you will, right before we take your blood test. Um, you know, we think that maybe being so on chill out for three days, chill out for three days. All right. Just 72 hours. That's it. Um, <laughs> the other thing is like cyclists or people who ride bicycles all the time. They're sitting on their taint or the perineum, what we call the perineum, that area between uh, no man's land. Some people say area between um, your scrotum and your anus. And so that is where the prostate lives. And so that constant pressure theoretically might contribute to falsely elevated PSA. So I'll tell cyclists not to ride cycle or ride their bike for, you know, a certain amount of time before. Um, And if the person, if the person, I hate this, if the person got a PSA checked while they were in the hospital sick, you know, like, please, 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 please don't check PSA when a person is sick, when they have an infection, just don't do it. Like, don't do it. Don't when they have blood in the urine, when they're 
complaining of painful urination, like any urinary, acute urinary symptoms, or they're sick in the hospital, just don't take a PSA then, please. You know, so those things, they're always, they're always falsely elevated. Why not? Because it's always falsely elevated. Anything that is, any urinary tract inflammation will absolutely affect your PSA. And honestly, I just think checking somebody who's sick in the hospital for X, Y, Z reason is like, that's just the worst time to check a PSA. There's just, again, there's unknown factors that could be there. So long-winded answer is, I, the short answer to this long-winded thing that I just said is, I will recheck it. I will say, let's recheck it in six weeks and go from there and see what happens. I will tell you, Dr. Randy, I want to say somewhere around 40% of patients will normalize. Like that recheck will be like drastically either normal or drastically lower where my concern is now much lower. And then I've spared them the knee-jerk biopsy, the knee-jerk prostate biopsy, which we used to do. You know, back in the day, you would have sent me that eight, 58-year-olds with eight, okay, sign you up for prostate biopsy on the, you know, next week. So... What's the process of a biopsy? Yeah, so a prostate biopsy is the way that we get tissue evidence of prostate cancer. We can't diagnose prostate cancer by the PSA blood test, okay? It's a screening test, and the screening PSA blood test is imperfect. In fact, again, some people can have a high PSA. This patient may live at eight. I've seen patients that lived in eight, nine and we've done biopsies and MRIs and this and that and found no cancer and they were fine. So, you know, you can have, again, PSA normally is four or less. But you can be above four and be um, not have prostate cancer. Now, the higher it is, the more concerning it is. You know, if you're now in the double digits, high double digits, triple digits, like you got prostate cancer somewhere. Like, <laughs> you know, but anyway, a prostate biopsy is where we get prostate tissue sample. And we oftentimes, most urologists in the United States will do a prostate biopsy in the office. This is an office procedure that, again, in the United States usually does not require anesthesia or an operating room. There are exceptions to this. Um, but it's typically, I tell patients in my office, it's about a 15-minute, one five, 15-minute procedure. So it's not terribly long. And you, we use what's called a transrectal ultrasound. So we go through the anus, okay, and gently put this ultrasound in the anus. Think of it like a, a big thumb. It's about the size of like a big thumb. And we use a lot of warm lube and gentle pressure. And we, we put it in and we can visualize the prostate very nicely through this ultrasound. And then we do um, use lidocaine to numb up the prostatic area. So that makes the biopsy not, you still feel the ultrasound, but like the actual biopsy needle, you shouldn't feel. Um, and then the standard biopsy is 12 samples. These 12 samples, 12 sounds like a lot, but it goes by really, really fast. Okay. And these are 12 samples from both sides of the prostate, different areas. Um, that is not, we don't always just do 12 samples. We can certainly do more. Um, we oftentimes, before a prostate biopsy nowadays, we'll do what's called a prostate MRI. Prostate MRI is great. It's helped to stratify patients further, whether we truly think, think we need the biopsy now or we can just continue to follow. So a prostate MRI can help to show if there's clinical suspicion and it's uh, what you'll get when you get a prostate MRI 
um, you'll get a result that's one of five scenarios or, or options. They grade your prostate in terms of PRADS. And PRADS is basically like um, a way to say the likelihood of prostate cancer. Okay. So PRADS or PRADS, tomato, tomato, PRADS 1 is very <laughs> low likelihood of prostate cancer. So that's the best option, best outcome. PRADS 2 on a prostate MRI is low likelihood. Okay. So that's good. PIRADS 3 is right question mark, what we call equivocal. It's got evidence. There's some findings that look like it's suspicious for prostate cancer, and there's some that aren't. So question mark. And PIRADS 4 and 5 are high and very high likelihood of prostate cancer. Um, And so um, we will get that oftentimes. And then if a patient is 3, 4, or 5, I will then usually say, let's do a biopsy. Um, if they're one and two, I usually actually will not do a biopsy unless there's other like really concerning factors. Like, you know, they're in double digits. They're really young. I, you know, might thought I felt something, but usually the pi- the prostate MRI will guide my biopsy decision. And um, then again, if we need to do the biopsy. So we take those samples. There's other ways to do a biopsy. There's something called transperineal where we don't actually put an ultrasound in the rectum. We use an ultrasound on the taint or perineum, and we can get through the prostate that way. And we do have to put the needles through the perineum too. So we usually do a block, and then we can put the needles through the perineum to get to the, again, the perineum is the taint, the bike seat area, the, it's called a lot of things. Grundle is called the no man's land, that area between your anus and your, in your um, from the rooter to the tutor, I'll kind of terminology for that area. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so let's just say the biopsy comes back positive, and this patient has prostate cancer. What are the treatment options? Sure. So it depends again on a lot of factors. I mean, there's not a one size fits all. Um, is the prostate cancer high risk, low risk? Is it appear to be confined? Or is it already gone outside of the prostate into lymph nodes, metastatic into bones? I mean, that's very different, the treatments for those two groups. Okay. But um, localized, let's just, you know, take the patient that does not have metastatic. That means the prostate cancer is just in their prostate. Um, treatment options can ver- can dep- can vary from we actually aren't doing anything and we're just watching it, what we call active surveillance. Active surveillance is the patient who is low risk enough, they have prostate cancer, but it's low grade, which is slow growing, not as serious, or low risk enough, that we think that treatment can be can wait or may not even need treatment ever, We but we want to watch it. Okay, just because we're not treating you doesn't mean we're just going to let you go and... See you never, but we want to watch it closely because if it evolves, becomes more uh, um, aggressive as we're watching it, then we would trigger treatment. Okay, so active surveillance is a potential for certain patients that have low, small volume prostate cancer. Then as far as active treatment options, 
um, their surgery. So you can have the whole prostate removed, what we call radical prostatectomy. When they do that, we remove the entire prostate. We also remove the seminal vesicles. Remember, those are the vesicles I talked about that contribute to majority of the semen production. And those vesicles are behind the bladder, kind of close to the prostate. Those have to go. We um, will remove a portion of your your um, vas or uh, vas deferens. That's where the sperm um, travels. And we re- because we remove all of that, you're tube that you pee out of is is disconnected from your bladder essentially so that urethra the tube you pee out of has to be reconnected to your bladder so we reconstruct that patients who do surgery they will have a catheter that drains their bladder for usually a week to help with that reconstruction and those patients do not make they can climax but they don't ejaculate anything. It's a dry ejaculate because we've essentially taken off, taken out everything that, con- that, that contributes to the ejaculate. So they don't ejaculate, they climax, they can have sex, they can orgasm, but there's no physical ejaculate. Um, so air just comes out? <laughs> just nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Less messy. I mean, it just is just, yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the other treatment option, um, is radiation and radiation can be in different forms. There's something called external beam radiation, which is more, you know, where, how you think of radiation, where you go in, um, multiple treatments in a set amount of time. Um, I think usually done weekly for a set amount of time and they kind of focus on one area of your pro- of your body. In this case, it'll be your pelvic area because that's where your prostate is. And then they'll um, map out radiation that they'll give you. Um, and so that is a treatment. The other type of radiation is called brachytherapy. Brachytherapy is where we implant actual radioactive seeds. So they implant these little bitty seeds, like tons of seeds into your prostate, like they're putting into your prostate. And then over time, they're like, they're radioactive and releasing radiation to the prostate. Um, There are um, hormonal deprivation treatment. Prostate is, prostate and prostate cancer are responsive to the male hormone. Okay. That's why the prostate is the only organ that continues to grow because the male hormone. And so treatment for prostate cancer can involve depleting the male hormone, essentially, you know, what you would consider male menopause and depleting testosterone intentionally um, to treat prostate cancer. That is more commonly done for prostate cancer that is more aggressive or become what we call metastatic. It's not usually the way to treat somebody who just has prostate cancer combined to their prostate. There are some newer prostate cancer therapies. Um, There's something called cryotherapy, which is where you can freeze the prostate, use like freeze the prostate. There's um, proton um, therapy. Um, There is now um, some research into like more local. The research area for prostate cancer is more like focused on how can we treat the prostate cancer without taking the whole damn prostate? you know, what we call focal therapy. Hmm. Can we do, you know, like akin to the lumpectomy for a breast cancer patient? Can we just take the lump out, 
mm-hmm. but not the whole breast. Same thing. Can we do something like that in some kind of way to the prostate without taking out the prostate? And that's still being kind of investigated to this day. Okay. That's some good information regarding treatment options. So as we've all kind of learned, prostate cancer screening is not kind of cookie cutter. Um, What kind of symptoms should patients potentially look out for that may push them more so when they have this conversation with their physician to possibly wanting to get screened? Well, here's the thing. You cannot rely on symptoms when it comes to any cancer, really. Um, But to prostate cancer, you can't wait and say, I have symptoms. And oftentimes, the urinary symptoms, like I having trouble peeing, I'm going to the bathroom all the time, my slowest dribbling is more points to a benign, non-cancerous prostate enlargement where the prostate just gets bigger, but it's not cancer, okay? And patients oftentimes will freak out because they'll have those symptoms. They'll be like, do I have cancer? I'm like, wait, 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 that doesn't mean you have cancer. And most times those patients don't necessarily. But um, so prostate cancer cells don't have any, any symptoms. It's when they invade other parts of your body that they're not, well, they're not supposed to be, they can start to have symptoms. Prostate cancer tends to go first to the lymph nodes. Those are, um, your, our body is full of lymph nodes all over our body. They help to like get rid of infection and, and disease. And so the lymph nodes in our pelvis near where the prostate, the prostate cancer tends to go to that first. In fact, when you get prostate surgery done for prostate cancer, they will take your lymph nodes, part of your pelvic lymph nodes. And they do that because they want to see and make sure the prostate hasn't gone there because prostate cancer almost always goes there first. Then after that, it can go to the bone. It likes to go to the bone. And so bone symptoms of your prostates in your bone can be bone pain. You know, it can be severe, debilitating bone Mm. pain. Um, The prostate can get so far into the bone in the spine that it can cause like um, neurologic symptoms. Like I can't walk, I can't, you know, I'm incontinent, like, you know, like acute, like almost spinal compression type of symptoms um, that can be seen. Um, That's not, that's, you know, rarer in, again, today's advent screening and all of those things, but that is not uncommon. And then weight loss. I mean, again, if prostate is outside of the body, metastatic disease, your your body may be wasting and weight loss. That's it for this episode discussing prostate cancer screening. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. I'll be back next week to discuss erectile dysfunction. Who's looking forward to that discussion? Well, I see you don't want to raise your hands, but I know you're looking forward to it. So come back next week where we discuss erectile dysfunction, treatment option, and causes of erectile dysfunction. Follow me and Dr. Milhouse on our social media platforms. Those links are located in the description of the episode. Have a good week, and as always, stay healthy physically and mentally.